Lord Almighty, we give you praise this evening and we thank you for the privilege of coming before your word just as we are. God, I pray that tonight you'd open our hearts and open our minds and help us to hear so that we can know you better and therefore love you and trust you more. Bless us, Jesus, so that we will be a blessing. In Jesus' name, amen. I was told once that a law professor assigned his students the book of Romans. He wanted them to outline the book because it is such a tightly argued case. And he wanted them to understand how to break it down because he wanted them to be able to think logically. Now, I have been doing my best, although not maybe to the law professor uh, idea, I don't know. But I've been doing my best to help you understand the flow of Romans, to help you get the message and see both the trees and the forest, because both are necessary if we're going to understand what is going on. And so tonight, I want to come to our passage by starting with the paragraph I told you might be the most important single paragraph in all of Scripture. And where we are going to end is arguably the second most important passage in all of Paul's writing. So we are going to begin where we were several weeks ago in Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26. Paul writes, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, it has been displayed apart from the law although the law and the prophets, the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation, a sacrifice that turns away God's wrath, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now, I would love to go through this all over again, but I just want to look at two of the most important words in here. Righteousness and justification. Now, righteousness, as it is found in this paragraph, actually has two senses. The first is righteousness as it relates to God, and then the second is righteousness as it relates to human beings. Now, righteousness as it relates to God means that he is perfectly consistent with himself. He is unalterably good. There is no unholiness. There is no darkness. God is at 100% perfect relationship with himself. Now, as it regards human beings, righteousness then also means we have a right relationship to God. But that's where we have a problem. Because we're not. We, as human beings, are not in a right 
relationship with God. And if you remember, we said several weeks ago that righteousness is a legal term. We need a right relationship with the judge of our souls. And so this mystery of how we go about getting that is exactly what Paul is going to explain it to us starting in verse 321 and going to the end of chapter 4. And then starting in 5 through chapter 8, Paul is going to expound a posit. He's going to exposit is. And that is this. How on earth do sinful, finite human beings gain the kind of relationship we need with the Lord to be called righteous? There is only one answer. It must be spoken into existence for us. Just as it is that God spoke the universe into existence, God needs to speak righteousness into existence into our soul. God can only do it. It's only done by Him, and we need Him to do it. And we have, fortunately, a word for this, and that word is justification. Look with me at Romans 4, 1-5. through 5. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he hasn't defined it yet, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There you go, the definition of righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So we get here, and Paul has now, in this passage before us so far, talked about the righteousness, being in a right relationship with God. And he's talked about how we go about doing it. God speaks it into existence. Okay, Paul, this is great. Thank you. But what is the mechanism? How does creation out of nothing, as it does with our soul, as it goes with our soul, how, how does this happen? We have two more words, grace and faith. Now, in this case, Paul picks up exactly where we left off in verse 6, and he quotes David, chapter 4, verse 6. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Now, blessed is a word that we throw around a lot. It's one of those kind of churchy words. And it's easy to just get caught up in the language, oh, blessed this. What it means is that you are one who experiences God's grace. If you are blessed, you're one who experiences the grace of God. Therefore, David is having a party and he's saying, woohoo, this is great. You should be rejoicing if you are someone whose sins have been forgiven. This is 
amazing grace, my friends. And I think one of the reasons why we, and I'm pointing my fingers at me here, why we are not happier is because we forget the greatest problem I have in the universe is solved for me. All these other little things, man, they, they'll go away. But I am forgiven. Amen. Now, if you remember, here uh, we see that Paul ties this blessedness, this experience of God's grace directly to justification. We're going to find how all these concepts are very interrelated. But grace, as we have been saying, is a two-sided coin. Grace, as we normally think of it, uh, as is out there all the time, is it's an undeserved gift, or as some people say, unmerited favor. I like undeserved gift because it sounds less churchy. But to what end? What, what is this favor or this gift meant to accomplish? Well, we see one of those right here. Our sins are not counted against us. But grace is obviously much more than just the forgiveness of sins. Grace is the power to find hope in and through our sufferings. Which, if you remember, is exactly what Paul was majoring on last week. So a better, a fuller, a more comprehensive way of expressing grace is that grace is God's power in us so that we can accomplish kingdom purposes. Now faith, on the other hand, is the trusting of God's promises. Simply saying, I believe in God is not enough. Well, what is it that we are to believe? Well, the promises God gives His people in Scripture. That's what we are to believe. Now, now if, if you're the kind of Christian who isn't going to God's Word and finding out what those promises are, you're, you're going to be weak. Try fasting for as long as you don't read the Bible. See how strong your body is. Well, find out what these promises are. And just to show how important knowing these promises are, once again, Paul uses Abraham as his example in Romans 4.20. Paul says, No unbelief made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. He was fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. So where are we? Grace. Grace is what God gives, and faith is the means by which God gives that grace. Paul put it succinctly in Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for it is by grace we have been saved through faith. And this, not from yourself. This is a gift of God not as a result of works. So what's going on here? One could say that grace is that which brings the justification, the right relationship to God. And faith is the tool that he uses it. Grace could, for example, 
be the air conditioning unit being turned on over there, and Faith would be the person who goes and turns it on. Okay. Well, I tried. Okay. Grace is the power that God uses to bring you to a right relationship with Him. And faith is the tool. It's, it's the, the means so that you know, wait, I trust His promises. Therefore, I must, in fact, be saved. But Paul can say more than this. He can confirm that the grace and the faith and their relationship to justification works for you and me as well. And again, we pick up right where we left off in verse 23. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. And it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised Him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised up for our justification. Now, I know we're going through a lot of big words here, and I'm trying to help us to get them in our mind so that we can know Him better. This justification, this right relationship with Himself that God speaks into existence on our behalf is by grace and it is through faith. And all of this is real. We need to remember, we here are supernaturalists. We are those who trust that God is and that He works for those who trust Him. This is real. And because this is real, we can base our life on it. And this justification also provides more that is objectively true, as we said last week, and is something that we subjectively experience. This is where we were last week in Romans 5. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And through Him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Because we are justified, we also have peace with God. And we stand in a grace-filled, grace oriented relationship with the Father. And because our peace and grace-filled relationship are objective truths, Paul can then objectively or subjectively exhort us to call us to experience Him. And how do we experience Him? We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So this is where Paul brings us. Because all of this is true for us, we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But we have a problem. We have a problem. And that problem, that which stands in the way of us rejoicing, is the wrath of God. We need, we must understand that God has nothing but wrath for our sin. So, 
Paul demonstrates next that God meets and has victory over this enemy as well. Verse 9, Paul says, Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved by Him from the wrath of God. That's why we further learned last week as we studied Romans 5, 1-11, that Jesus bore God's wrath on the cross. We know that He then rose from the grave and He says, Paul said last week, He pours out God's love into our hearts through His Holy Spirit. And Jesus did this demonstrating His love for us is greater than any human fickle love because He bore God's wrath against us while we were still His enemies. And that's why we must rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. So, our passage, our trip through 3.21 to 5.11 brings us to our passage tonight. Tonight, we learn the answer to answer another question. As we look at all of this that we have learned in chapters 3, 4, and 5, now we find the biblical picture, the biblical understanding of how it is that this transition can happen. How is it that God can justify the wicked and remain just at the same time? As we answer that question, let's read our three paragraphs. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following the many trespasses brought justification. For if because of the one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in the life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many were made righteous. Now, The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, that was a mouthful. (laughs) Hang in there. Hopefully we'll make it a little clearer. The therefore in verse 12 has to point to something. And I think in this case, it's a parallel with the therefore in 5.1. And what Paul is hoping that we will remember is we will remember that God credited righteousness to Abraham because he, was, he trusted in his promises. 
Okay, that's what we get in 4, 20 to 22. We are now justified. We are now at peace with God. And we now stand in this right relationship with God based on grace. And we can rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. But what we see in 12 is a major problem. And he's calling out to us, don't forget while you're rejoicing that there's this elephant in the room. And so what he gives in verse 12 is this problem. And then he gives in 13 and 14, he gives the evidence for for this problem that everybody should see. And it kind of strikes us as odd. It's not really how we argue in the 21st century, but that's okay because Paul lived 20 centuries ago. So what we have in 12 to 14 is Paul says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Adam sinned. We get death. That's what's going on in verse 12. And we know that verse 12 is true, that sin and universal death came from Adam's sin because the reality of death existed immediately after Adam and Eve were kicked out of the Garden of Eden, which is what he says in verses 13 and 14. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law, yet... Death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. So, in one sentence, 12 to 14, death has entered into our world because of the sin of Adam to every single one of Adam's children. Wow. That's a hard pill to swallow. This passage that we started may be the second most important passage in all of Paul's writings. Now why is that? Because Paul sees the world as populated by two kinds of people. Those who are in Adam and those who are in Christ. He's not interested in other distinctions. It's not Jew or Greek. It's not male or female. It's not slave or free. Are you in Adam or are you in Christ? Now, Beyond what I said in 321 to 26, beyond righteousness and justification and grace and faith, there may be no more fundamental distinction for Paul than an understanding the relationship that Adam and Christ had to the rest of humanity. Every area of theology as it relates to humans is impacted by this. Is a particular person saved? Do they stand in Adam or in Christ? Is a particular person being sanctified? Do they stand in Adam or in Christ? Is a person a member of the church? Do they stand in Adam or in Christ? Is a person able to understand God's word? Do they stand in Adam or in Christ? Will a person spend eternity in heaven or in hell? Do they stand in Adam or in Christ? This is, the, this is Paul's fundamental question for all of theology as it relates to human beings. So, based on verses 12 to 14, we see that death is an established reality for every single man, woman, and child. Because we, like Adam, are all sinners. And this is the big pill. This is the offensive teaching. This is what the world hates to hear from us. Original sin. 
Now, original sin is not so much the idea that Adam and Eve sinned. Adam and Eve did sin, and the result of that is that every single person born after them are therefore sinners. Now, an important note. You are not a sinner merely because you sinned this afternoon. You sin because you are a sinner. And this universal fact of death in verses 13 and 14 prove this teaching as far as Paul is concerned. And this teaching of original sin also helps us to understand the relationship of Adam to the rest of humanity. In Adam, all sin. Therefore, in Adam, all die. Now let's tie this back into where we've come from. The greatest threat to your life and to your happiness is not poor health. The greatest threat to you is not unfulfilling relationships. The greatest threat to you is not disappointing circumstances. The greatest threat to you is God's wrath against your sins. And this wrath is expressed against everyone in Adam by death. Spiritual death, physical death, and if confirmed by physical death, spiritual death becomes eternal death. And so for as long as we are on this earth, even for those of us who are in Christ, as we remain physically in Adam, we are therefore subject to physical death. But since we are no longer spiritually dead, we are not subject to eternal death. Ooh, this is heavy stuff. Good news is coming. And it starts in verse 15. Verse 15 says, But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more will have the grace of God and the free gift of God by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, that abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of the one man's sin. For the judgment following the one man's trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Note here, Paul repeats, for if, twice, and then he follows it with the predicament we find ourselves in Adam. And then he follows it with a much more. And in both cases, he's celebrating the great gift of God's grace to those who are in Christ that reverses the predicament for those in Adam. Now, Paul takes it for granted that the reality of Adam and Eve leads to judgment and death because it follows necessarily from their sin. And he points, though, to a greater reality for those of us who are in Christ. Now, let's be honest for a second. To the unbiased viewer of this, this predicament that Paul describes is absolutely true. Death and despair 
reign in this world. Death and despair reign because Adam fell and all his children are fallen as well. And we are constantly led astray into chasing after dreams that lead to further death and despair. But remember, for those of us who are in Christ, we are supernaturalists. We believe in good news. So here's the good news. Much more! Yes, death and despair through Adam, but in Christ there is something so much better. Life and peace through Jesus Christ. Now, every single person is in Adam or in Christ. Yes, it's bad in Adam, but God in His abundant, free, amazing grace has given us an undeserved gift and power to use that gift for kingdom purposes. That is, we are given a right relationship with God and we are given purpose in suffering, as we spent time talking about last week, that makes us rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now this is a picture of kind of how it is. All of humanity is in the big circle. We are all, as long as we are in this flesh, in Adam. And what do we find there? We find wrath and death. And for a certain population, don't know how many, there is another circle. And if we are born again, we are born into Christ, and there we find life and peace. And this is just sticking with what we've found here. We say that in Adam there is sin and wrath and death, but we have righteousness and life and peace in Christ. And Paul sums this up in two verses. Verses 18 and 19. Where he says, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, all men who are in Adam, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men, all who are in Christ. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And that brings us back to our picture. All men in Adam have wrath and death, and all people, every man, woman, and child in Christ will have this life in peace. Because, though, you and I are still in the flesh, we remain subject to both sin and death, fortunately not eternal death, but we still are here. We are are in Christ, and this brings us exactly to where we are going to find ourselves next week, starting in Romans 6. But let's see how Paul transitions in verses 20 and 21. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And this is exactly where we're going to pick up next week because we're going to see that in Christ, for those of us who are in Christ, we are no longer slaves to sin. Amen? 
And then hopefully we'll be back to a happier sermon because we'll be talking about how it is we find victory over our sin. But as we do, we will also rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, as we go to Your Word and as we find difficult thoughts, I pray that You would give us the discipline of mind and body so that we will think these thoughts after You. God, cause us to turn back to Your Word so that we will hear You afresh and hear You again and become the men and women You have created us to be for our joy, for Your glory, and for the growth of Your kingdom. In Jesus' name. Amen.